0: Hello Cardi P listeners, it's Nadia dropping in with a nice little bonus episode from my new podcast, Swords and Wigs. Every week my co-host Caroline Fulford and I dig into high fantasy and YA books to talk about storytelling traditions, sword fights, and chosen ones. This season we're covering the works of Tamara Pierce and what we've dubbed the Italian Cinematic Universe. Have a listen to our recent episode where we review the new film The Green Knights starring Dave Patel and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Welcome to a special bonus episode of the Swords and Wigs podcast. Uh, we thought that we'd just have a little uh, top a topical coverage episode, as as topical as the word the world of uh, swords and sorcery can get. Because last night we went to see The Green Knight in theaters.
0: We have been waiting years. For this one because actually last year when we started recording the podcast um we had plans to go and see it together and then of course it was delayed because of COVID and they really wanted to reserve it for a theater experience and I guess we can start by talking about whether that was worth it I really enjoyed the theater experience of it
1: yes absolutely I mean I think it helps that uh for at, towards the end supposedly of a global pandemic to go see an epic about like life death and rebirth is probably as close to being worth it as is possible because it seems, I don't know I think everyone's coping strategy is different but I am a, as a person like to kind of steer into whatever emotions I'm having to mm-hmm. in terms of like the media I'm consuming so it did feel kind of of a theme. Like, it, it felt like accepting life and death and, you know, all of those sort of global themes.
0: You know, I hear you, but I also feel like we have been saying that about everything. <laughs> like, everything can be applied to our bizarre pandemic experience. And, like, it's almost as if all art is a commentary on life and yeah. the futility of everything I was we just- do.
1: I was just watching the Love is Blind reunion, and that is also a commentary on pandemic life. Art, (laughs) commentary, exactly,
0: truly. Um, So I think let's kick us off, as we always do, with a short synopsis of what the movie was about, and then we can kind of dig into how dreamy Dave Patel is.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, Spoiler warning, I guess. Um, We'll try not to get overly specific in order to, you know, not reveal all the sort of fun parts of seeing this in theaters, but it is based on, like, a thousand-year-old poem or something. So get, get to Wikipedia, and you'll know what we're talking about.
0: Yeah, also, I think it would be really hard to spoil, because it's, like, a very uh, vibes-driven movie. Right. Like, there are moments that are, like, plot-heavy, I guess, but, like, a lot of it is like a man on a journey, and that's kind of the whole shtick.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, well, let's briefly summarize. Uh, this is an Arthurian legend, so it has all the familiar cast of characters. King Arthur, Guinevere. Uh, we got some Merlin action as well. Um, we have Morgan Le Fay slash Morgause. I think they kind of conflated those characters. Uh, and our main character is Gowan, who is... King Arthur's nephew and uh, a young knight whose destiny it is to become the most perfect or most blameless knight of the Arthurian uh, court and his journey to be to sort of embodying that legacy.
0: Yeah, so Gawain is played by Dave Patel uh, and his mother, I guess Morgan Le Fay. I didn't realize it was Morgana Le Fay. I was kind of, when I was watching it, I was just kind of thinking, like, oh, this is, like, a vague Arthurian concept, but, mm-hmm. like, none of the characters are, like, specific. But I guess, apparently, Sarita Choudhury plays his mother, um, the witch who kind of orchestrates his whole journey to some degree. And it's... We will talk later about that, because that was especially delicious for me. Mm-hmm. But the story kind of kicks off with Gawain being a sort of young, unblooded potential knight, he is sitting in the court of King Arthur and he feels like he does not quite belong. When asked to retell a story of his greatness he realizes that he has none and it's kind of uh, a moment of humility but then again it precedes the sort of the story that comes when the Green Knight, a sort of druidic vision of Mm -hmm. a man made out of tree bark or a living tree Comes through the door and challenges King Arthur's court to a Christmas game in which any one of them, some chosen champion, can take a blow against him. And then in one year, they will have that blow returned. Mm -hmm. So it is not a game that makes sense. I will say (laughs) that. It's a very sort of strange, like, I guess this makes sense on paper kind of thing. But I remember even when I first read the story, I was like, sure. That, okay, it feels like a not yet elaborate enough ruse to start a story. But Gawain leaps over the table and takes up his sword, which I guess is Excalibur, King mm. Arthur, hands him a sword. He gets to hold it. He takes his blow. He beheads the knight, thinking that he's won. And lo and behold, the knight picks up his head and says, I will see you in one year. And that begins sort of the existential crisis of the movie.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the movie kind of establishes right away that the story we're about to see is kind of one that is prescribed by myth as an idea, like that the titles, I think, are pretty um, intrusive to, visually. And I think that's a pretty clever touch, like, literally the title that we get and this will you know make the movie twitter very excited there actually is no title card spoiler alert until the very end the only title card we get is sir gowan and the dot 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 so that kind of gives you an idea of like this is a story that we're a version of which we're watching but has been told a million times um and in some way is still being told as if It's all very this like cyclical kind of or hearkening back to the oral tradition and yeah it's it's definitely true to the source material in as much as one can be to like an old old poem in you know rhyming middle English but uh, but it also had like more of a sense of humor than I thought it was going to have which was nice. Um, I wonder definitely... if it's
0: also playing off of the new cultural trend of like irreverent period pieces, where it's like people kind of take a look around and are like, "Okay, this is strange." Like even Dave Patel was just in the David Copperfield
1: right movie, but it didn't go into full like Marvel territory where he goes like, "Well, that's a thing" or something yeah. when you know a talking fox starts talking to him. But so it doesn't go it doesn't go quite too deep into like you know tongue-in-cheek shrek levels of commentary on you know the fairy tale world but thank god
0: it's it's a pretty like in a lot of ways it's a pretty minimal film kind of sparse like there's not a ton of dialogue it's not dialogue driven it's it allows a lot of room to breathe in the landscapes like it pans over these incredible landscapes and I actually really enjoyed that about the theater experiences like you mm-hmm. get these massive frames of just like woods or just like highlands or wherever they shot this and you kind of see Gawain as a, a small piece moving through it but you kind of get the sort of the enormity of where he's trekking through and kind of the untouched quality of this world and how it's still very wild and there's still a lot that's unknown and not understood yet like so the movie sort of traces Gawain as he comes to the realization that he actually does need to fulfill his end of the bargain and then he goes on a trek to go and find the green chapel where the green knight is waiting for him and along the way he encounters many many sort of obstacles that test his sense of honor his sense of manhood um his morality in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and also give him a taste of mortality and like what's to come so there's a lot of themes that it plays with and i think in some ways because it is so sparse it also sort of paints with some sort of like heavy brushstrokes in the sense that you're watching this and the themes immediately jump out like everything kind of plays together into this like very clear dance of thematic elements that kind of come to a close by the end. And like, you know, he makes his choice by the end of the movie and it all kind of comes all together. And what I found was that it sort of struck me as the coming of age story for a knight, which is very thematically linked mm-hmm. to, I think, our other, yes the other stuff that we've covered here.
1: Yeah, and definitely um, a commentary on gender as well. And yes, This whole story is about uh, not only like the courtly sense of honor, but about, you know, affirming certain kinds of masculinity. Like at the beginning, we're introduced to Gowan via like him hanging out at a brothel with his mistress, uh, played by Alicia Vikander. And it's kind of like a Spielbergian, like, you know, Indiana Jones kind of intro. We're like, here's our hero. He's like a a lovable lout. And uh, it kind of goes from... Uh, you know, having been born with a certain amount of honor and position, to having to earn it via, you know, being reduced to nothing, to, um, you know, carrying out sort of heroic quests for supernatural beings who won't give you anything in return, like Saint Winifred, and that that whole sequence I loved. Um,
0: yeah, that I I want to talk more about that for yeah. sure. There is a lot of um, interpersonal conflict, I would say, between. Gawain and women around him. And Mm. I was really struck by actually, even though the movie really focuses on Gawain and his pursuit of honor or his pursuit of like knighthood, it really, his his path is entirely lined with women who affect that. Mm -hmm. And as a result, he gets a lot of opportunities to demonstrate kind of more interpersonal honor or more interpersonal good treatment. Like an opportunity in like, in a bedroom setting, in an intimate setting, with his mother to sort of act on his ideals of honor. And, you know, he does so with varying degrees of success, I would say. Like, you kind of see this sort of undulation of when he is able to act with honor and when he isn't, and what women kind of come under that. So, I think her name is Essel, Mm -hmm. I I think, yeah. So, the the woman that he sleeps with, that he has all this pillow talk with, that he seems to be very soft around very intimate with at one point like poses the question to him like will you make me your lady when you become a knight and he doesn't answer her and of course his silence is answer enough and it's it was really heartbreaking actually and you kind of you you are able to juxtapose that interaction with how he acts as a knight towards women who ask for his help or who pursue him in other degrees. Or even his relationship with his mother, which is very sweet and is very caring. And there's obviously a lot unspoken between them. And a lot of understanding between them. So it's it's kind of, I really found myself, like, sitting back and reflecting on that. Like, if this movie is about Gowen, it's also not really about him. Mm-hmm. It's about the women around him. Like, he's, I think there are a lot of scenes where he's, like, sort of surrounded by women. Like... I guess it's either the handmaidens of his mother or his sisters because they're also brown and dressed mm-hmm. in the same textiles, so it's really unclear. But there are moments in which he is held up and supported and taken care of by women. And it doesn't really feel like it's about him in that moment anymore.
1: Right. And his, his sexuality uh, has consequences in a way that I don't think we, we often see male sexualities having consequences. I mean, Joe Livingston post. Uh, pointed this out in their review at the New Republic which just came out today but um, Alicia Vikander as I mentioned plays both his kind of you know peasant mistress and also this great lady that he meets later in the home of uh, Joel Edgerton this lord who takes him in right before he goes to the Green Chapel and she basically is there to kind of set a trap for him or to challenge his courtly honor by continually tempting him. him Mm -hmm. And continually kind of asking him to cross a boundary under the hospitality rules of, you know, being in her husband's house. So and she gives a monologue, which I'll have to see if that's quoting another text directly, because it sounded very of a theme with other like old or middle English poems where it's all about like life. And she talks about green versus red. And how green is what red leaves behind. Red is, like, lust and life and blood. And green is, like, nature and rotting. Rot and and decay. Mm -hmm. And so she is kind of, like, yes, his mother and that sort of divine feminine force is kind of surrounding him. But he's also kind of bookend, like, his journey is bookended by this question of his, like, adult sexuality with women and sort of the ways that the that 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 sort of libidinal uh, question of honor can be played out
0: yeah there was a really interesting moment right so the lord that takes him in um, whose wife is you know sitting by his bedside is like tempting him is offering him gifts is sort of acting very worldly worldly around him this lord sort of offers sort of the same kind of challenge or the same game as the green knight where he says you know whatever you take from my house I will you will have to return like sort of whatever I give you you will have to give back Mm -hmm. or whatever you take I will take back something like that something to the degree of like whatever you do there is an active consequence to it there will Mm -hmm. be a return on this blow and Obviously, like, he gets up to something with this man's wife and later he kind of is confronted in his... He tries to flee the house um, and to preserve his barely intact honor and he is confronted by the Lord on his way out. And the Lord's like, where are you going? What about our game? And, like, reaches down and kisses Gawain and Gawain says, unhand me. And I found that moment extremely charged like, obviously, there's um, a sense of consequence, but there's also kind of it, it hinted at something more complicated and more wild and unknown, I would say, like about the relationship between a lord and his guest, or about mm. the relationship between this particular lord and Gawain and sort of the consequence of this whole cycle. Like, why does that woman resemble the woman that he slept with back in, you know, back in Camelot? Why is this lord. You know, stealing a kiss from him. What does all of this mean? And I felt in that moment, you know, there's this movie is like, you know, there's so many mystical qualities to it. There's like a talking fox. There's like giants. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of elements to it. But that to me was the most confusing. I was just like, what are we meant to do with this? Like, where does this go? What does this lead to? And it doesn't ultimately really go anywhere. But I feel like it really shakes Gowan to his boots. You know, he he has to really deal with the fact that he can't act like an impetuous teenager and that he actually like to be a man means like owning your actions I think but who's to say
1: yeah I mean I, I think the kiss scene comes from the source material in that like the lord says I'm going to go out hunting every day and by giving you what I gain over the course of the day you'll give me what you gain over the course of the day which was like a kiss from his wife so him and there is like the ki- like two men kissing in the poem in addition to the kissing between him and the lady so it is kind of this i do love the sense of like math that all of these <laughs> myths and legends have it's like everything it's like everything has to be this algebra equation of like one thing having a direct return or a consequence and it's about balancing like it's just about balance and it's about renewal and you get the sense that like the movie like the poem is kind of about you know rejecting the temporary sort of rewards of the flesh or the or magic or the mystical in order for this christian sense of eternal life and uh, resurrection via you know allowing the green knight to presumably chop his head off but um but it's also kind of about like human life it, it kind of i think it kind of threads that needle by saying that it's about this kind of earthly cycle and also the sort of metaphysical
0: yeah i mean it definitely plays heavily on the sense of cycles and cyclical natures because there's a kind of there's a lot of like echoing i would say Mm. throughout the movie there's obviously the motif of this like spinning wheel in this puppet show that shows up that shows you know the seasons passing and, of course, it keeps coming back to a, a halting stop on winter where all this is supposed to go down. There's a lot of of that for sure. And I was really compelled by the witchcraft in this. And I love mm-hmm. that they all kind of – like. there's a moment in which they ask him or some character asks Gowan, like, do you believe? And it's like – he takes it to mean, do you believe in witchcraft? And he's like, of course I believe in witchcraft. Well, of course, because like, his mother is a witch. But, mm-hmm. like – I think that that was so funny in a lot of ways because, you know, he's confronted by this, like, this tree knight, this, like, earthen thing that he thinks is not of this world, and the question is still, do you believe in witchcraft? Well, he's seen so many things, though. Like, uh, he's observed so many strange occurrences that, like, witchcraft seems to be, like, the least of it, you know? So there's kind of also this, like, sort of charming sense of, like, world building in which the characters within the world are actively questioning the rules of the world that they live in and I really I enjoyed that and I I'm using this as a way to start talking about Sarita Chowdhury because I am Mm -hmm. such a huge fan of her and I'm such a huge fan of this comeback that she's making Mm -hmm. and it was really I I think we so rarely get examples of like South Asian brown witches, just like we so rarely get examples of, like, black witches. Mm -hmm. Like, there's something really delicious about having this, like, ancient mythological character being played by a South Asian woman, and she is the mother to a South Asian knight. And it's this kind of, like, gorgeous moment because, like, I came into it thinking, oh, this is going to be race-blind casting, right? Having... Dave Patel play Gowan is sort of a really masterful move of just like, you know, being able to like utilize his growing audience and like the fact that he's like a really hot commodity and he's very mm-hmm. one of those like men, as if written by woman kind of yeah. dudes like internet <laughs> boyfriend, right? Like amazing choice, really, really great. But then to also have like the women around him, the women in his household also be played by South Asian women and to have Sarita Choudri play his mother, you know, like the the much reviled Morgana Le Fay is like honestly kind of gorgeous in a way because it's like it's not miracle workers it's not rogers and hammerstein cinderella level of Mm -hmm. of uh race blind casting but it's also not like bridgerton levels of hacky Mm. you know it's kind of somewhere in between and it kind of feels a little bit more accurate in the sense that medieval europe was fully occupied by people of color in a way that we are so slow to understand is like it was a very diverse society and like to actually have named characters who represent, you know, these, these storied characters, um, is just really nice. I don't know how else to say it. I just felt very, I loved it. I I felt not acknowledged, but like, like we're building on the Canon right now. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it.
1: Yeah. I think we talk a lot in here about how, um, the sort of you know imaginary of the west of western culture especially of this kind of medieval period which is like the drawer that every fantasy writer tends to like shuffle through in order to kind of get their fantasy worlds from if they're trying to you know write an english language especially but uh i thought that this movie made the argument that like it is like the mythology kind of belongs to everyone and it's not it doesn't have to kind of um, be this cultural marker of like whiteness which is that you know that great sort of er- it's an erasure in itself and that it doesn't recognize itself but I think that a movie like this kind of makes the argument that like the act of, tori- of storytelling is, is active and it is creative and uh, we in the 21st century have a responsibility to kind of not make the imaginary so stagnant you know, it doesn't. We can change its connotations and its meanings while still continuing on the same legend.
0: And this might be a, a sort of a stretch and I want to be really aware of that. It might just be like my fangirl imagination deciding these things. But I was also struck by the textiles in Mm. the movie because you get a lot of really gorgeous close-ups of like, you know, his like velvet coat, his, the green protective belt that he wears, Mm. you know, his, his, his tunic and his tights. There is a a multiple scenes actually with Morgana slash Saritha and These other sort of brown witches who I think are Gowan sisters, Mm. but I might uh, not be sure about that. And they're all dressed in the same textile. And it's sort of this like indigo silk fabric with like a gold border. And it looked so much like a sari to Mm. me. Like it looked so traditional in a lot of ways. It looked like a very basic indians are a very basic indian textile and then also like later we get a close-up of like another textile he's wearing which is like a color it's like a wood blocked floral design mm-hmm. on again blue fabric and that also looked very traditional indian to me so i was kind of wondering if maybe they were making kind of gestures at the origins of of these characters of these actors or if that was just kind of like also in some ways like it also, again, speaks to the universality of these stories that, like, yeah, a lot of medieval paintings, for example, you know, p- during the Crusades showed the Virgin Mary wearing, like, textiles from the Middle East that are embroidered mm-hmm. with Arabic script from the Quran, even though she's the Virgin Mary. Like, there is this kind of, like, strange cross-cultural exchange that ends up happening and so maybe in some way like those textiles looking like to me traditional indian textiles it's also an indication that like the world was a lot more global even then Mm -hmm. before you know the current age and like there was a lot more sharing and there was maybe even a kind of like an immaculate manifestation of like the same textiles and the same handicrafts appearing in both places you know there's a lot to be said about that and i don't know again it, it could also be a total stretch of the imagination but that was that really struck me and like i think also because the sparseness of the movie really lends itself to these textures right so you, you the reason why the textiles stood out was because we got really gorgeous close-ups mm-hmm. of the actors and like you know they their costumes were really minimal to be accurate I would say so we get a lot of like views into them and like what everyone is wearing to me is really striking like there's a lot of blues for example Mm. throughout the movie like Gowan wears blue Morgana wears blue um, the lady in the house wears blue there's a lot of blues and like blue is like a very royal color. And like, what does that indicate? And who are these characters who are blue? And then there's also the green belt and there's a green knight, There's a green chapel. There's a lot of like kind of color symbolism, like we said, with the red and the green. So it, it to me, like the movie really plays into that, even though it feels very washed out at times, like you do get these like spots of color that are meant to jump out at you. So maybe it's not a stretch. Maybe the emphasis on the textiles makes total sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is definitely a movie where the costumes are primarily there for storytelling and not to be like picked apart by people on the internet who love picking apart, you know, period accurate costumes. But because like also the the blue dress that the lady wears towards the end has like a full like, you know,
0: it's a very J-Lo moment. Yeah, it's, yeah. Very,
1: it's like kind of nasty gal with like a V-cut <laughs> thing in the front. And like, yes, that absolutely makes sense for what this character is doing. And she has like a, you know, Queen Amidala kind of hair thing going on as well, which is also incredible. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm fully in the camp of like, I really don't care about this idea of period accuracy, because also like how much period accuracy can you have towards this kind of, you know, primal time and this sort of legendary storytelling? Uh, The storytelling is supposed to be what's important
0: yeah i it actually really made me feel heartened and encouraged that we have the chops finally to talk about or to like tell these stories right because i feel like at least in my opinion in my um, extremely humble opinion (laughs) the way that we depict arthurian stories in movies has been crap so far Mm. Like, I think we peaked with Sword in the Stone, the animated feature, <laughs> and now Green Knight. Like, I think in terms of, like, the sense of humor, the lightness, but also the darkness and the depth and the gravity. Like, you have you have Sword in the Stone, you have um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and then you have Green Knight. And I feel like, you know, for – I feel like the Medieval Studies kids are eating, finally. <laughs> like <laughs> – there's, there's a lot, I think, that's missing in the canon. And there's a lot that we haven't really been able to do justice to. I would love to see someone take on, like, the story of the Lady of Shalot. Like, that mm-hmm. would be really great. There's a lot to dig into here. And I feel like this really indicates that in some ways we're ready to do that. But also that maybe just A24 and their model of, like, big quanging noises and, mm-hmm. like, vibey sets is, like, pretty fertile ground to do a lot of different types of storytelling.
1: Yeah. Especially because there's nothing A24 likes more than, like, big what-the-fuck moments. And <laughs> exactly. ancient, ancient legends have nothing but big what-the-fuck moments.
0: Yeah. Can you imagine A24 taking on, like, the myth of Gilgamesh? Oh, like, my God. I feel God. like they would they would knock that shit out of the park. If they
1: just didn't – if Well, they would have to give it this really, like, call-me-by-your-name kind of framing <laughs> of, like, aspirational, pale gaze – uh, in the <laughs> ethic of Gilgamesh,
0: I I could get behind like a Babylonian call me by your name. Okay, like that's that's not the worst. An Assyrian call me by your name. <laughs> um, it's just kind of like I just I think that in a for a long time I think myths mythologies have kind of been out of bounds. I would say like I just don't really feel like we have been really given a lot of good material modern material. that that engage with the canons wholeheartedly, you know, that really, like, try to build on it, that try to add it to, that try to apply sort of conversations that we're having now to these ancient poems or these ancient epics and stories because, you know, I think humanity for all time has been wrestling with the same issues of, like, what happens when we die? Mm -hmm. Am I a good husband? Like, (laughs) it's kind of all sort of the same stuff and um, I think this stuff is really, really ripe in a lot of ways, I want it to happen, but I also don't want it to happen because I also want us to have unique stories for the right. first time in a long time. But at the same time, like, it it really does scratch some kind of itch for me. And I'm saying this because the, the last thing to really scratch this itch for me is the Hades video game from Supergiant. That totally dominated a few months of my year wow. where I was just playing this, like, dungeon crawler constantly. <laughs> but because it's, like, it's faithfulness and dedication... To you know the 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 Greek stories was just so apparent. It was just so brimming with like love for the stories, and so it had so much care and dexterity with them that like it felt very satisfying to to play the game as a myth kid, as someone who's a, a, a you know who wanted to study the classics and didn't for something more practical, mm-hmm. and to avoid a secret history moment. Obviously, mm-hmm. I really felt satisfied and full up on it and I feel like Green Knight kind of does the same things it it references the poem so much it pulls in these characters and it gives you a different side of them like in a lot of ways it's fan fiction right like anything is sort of fan fiction on the original source material but like to see like an aging Arthur and an aging Guinevere and to imagine what the world was like after them is like very satisfying in some ways because like those are questions that you ask yourself, and you maybe don't voice because it's so nerdy and it's so niche. Yeah,
1: this is definitely a world in which uh, Arthur and Guinevere look absolutely busted from the beginning. They both they <laughs> by, I, they look kind of like Tim Burton characters by the by, like the last. Oh time yeah, you just see like them. chiseled cheekbones. Yeah, like they have like two black eyes, pretty much crow pecked. Like, yeah, yeah, this movie kind of takes place in a ver- a version of this legendary world where like the main legend that we hear so much about is like King Arthur and the sword and the stone. And like, all of that is what is over by the time this story begins. So it kind of is doubly cyclical in that it's like a smaller story within this greater story that has already come to a close and like going, getting back to like the gender and sexuality thing, like not to spoil a particularly um, surprising moment in the movie, but I think that this whole – the emphasis on cycles is – for a story that is about, like, a hero's journey and about one man sort of, you know, uh, coming of age. Like, it is this kind of, like, more feminine world. Like you said, he's very inscribed by women, but it's also, like, cyclical instead of just, like, linear. And, you know, it's the – it's not just the, like, you know, set-up climax denouement. It's this kind of sense of, like, things always kind of starting over again which, you know, from a narrative perspective is more quote-unquote feminine. But yeah, I think that like if we can make new adaptations of old stories that kind of take these questions seriously, I think they're definitely worth returning to.
0: Yeah, one of the most compelling story elements, I think, of the film is every time – it sort of feels like there are moments in which he is really – confronting his own mortality in a really clear and like disturbing way and it kind of cycles forward in time and then it cycles back Mm -hmm. so like it kind of brings him back to the start so he can kind of make a different choice or take a different action or just to act at all you know like I really enjoyed that because I feel like we get a view into his head in a way that like a story like this might not spend time with how he thinks and how he feels but would be more interested in his actions right because i think a, a poem like this is not so much occupied with emotions but more actions more what is the legacy what becomes the story what becomes known and this is really obsessed with actually his feelings like he's the, the clock is ticking on him right like in the whole movie we get a sense of his dread is like growing and growing and growing like the myth of him cutting off the green knight's head you know, it, it follows him everywhere mm-hmm. he goes. People know his story already and they don't have any view or any sense that, you know, he is dealing with the fact that he might be dead at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. You know, he is a young, unblooded knight and he's already stirring down mortality. Like he has to confront mortality without honor, without glory, because he's realizing that there's no glory in death. Right. So there's kind of this back and forth where like all the arguments are sort of in front of him and he has to keep making decisions and making new decisions and reversing old decisions and making Mm -hmm. new decisions. And it's kind of a very compelling character study in that way, because there's no clear answer. And even by the end of the movie, you kind of are still sitting there in your chair, second guessing what you just saw. And I think that it really indicates that we need to keep watching it over and over again. I'm definitely going to see
1: it. I'm going to see it again probably. Um, not because it's one of those things where like, oh, did you see that there was, you know, a ghost it's in the background. It's not Easter egg yeah, hunting. Yeah. It's not like that. It's more that like it it you get this sense that like you could start it over as soon as you finished it and it would be kind of still telling the same story of starting over and death and life and rebirth and everything.
0: Yeah, I wonder if it forms a perfect loop, <laughs> like a good TikTok.
1: I mean, again, I am sure that David Lowry is enough of like a. Fi- There's definitely a strong like film Twitter vibe to his career oh, yes. so far. So, judging by the lat, like the title card literally coming at the end, I'm sure that that would just be like so rewarding to match up and like you know frame by frame on some sort of subreddit, but.
0: I, again, I just want to say how much I love Dave Patel in this. I think he he is so good as Gowan, as this, like, you know, this Sir Gowan, the gallant, right? Like, he is, in the stories, he's, like, the purest of the knights. Mm-hmm. He's the one who is, like, the closest to God in a lot of ways. Like, he has a very sort of Jesus-like mentality, and he's, like, considered, like, you know, he's chaste, he's a virgin, he's all of these, like, things that are considered good if I'm remembering correctly. Mm. And so that's what makes this character really compelling is like, we're seeing him test that metal. And in a lot of ways, it feels like maybe he's like that just because he hasn't had the temptation or hasn't had the choice to not be that way, which is also very interesting, right? Like, are you really good if you've never been given a choice to be bad? Mm. So like, I think that that's what the movie is also kind of contending with. It's like, there's the Gowan that we know from the stories, and there's the Gowen that we see on the screen, and they're they're different characters, I think. And it's interesting, because I think, like, yeah, over time, these stories get flattened by all the retellings. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of breeds a lot of new life into it. And I think that Dave Patel does a really great job of, like, you know, he, he has a very expressive face, and he has that, like, gaping mouth that he, like, lets <laughs> hang when he's, like, not sure what he's going to do. And Aww. he's, like, confused, and he's, like, making decisions, you know? And, like, I... You know, there are, like, eye actors, like Daniel Kalia, great eye actor. Mm. Um, uh, but in the vein of, like, Keira Knightley, they Patel is a mouth actor, <laughs> I think.
1: <laughs> I mean, eyes, too. I think his his eyes were allowed to be very, like... We got, like, different shades of brown, different lighting. I love the lighting in this movie. It's definitely not a movie. It Like, it has CGI and everything, but often it will kind of get away with, like, a lighting choice being, you know constructive of something supernatural going on and also just for a character thing. Like he's very he's very well lit. He has lots of different like hair styles going on over the course. Like his hair is also going going through a journey as as Sir Gowan goes his, on a journey. His
0: hair is its its own character. Yes. It's gorgeous. Same with Sarita Choti's hair. Gorgeous. I think that the movie is really brave because it lets Dave Patel be super hot, and they really they marketed the movie on that as well. Like there was a really great post going around from like the A24 social accounts that was like, "You can call him sir," and it was just like, "Oh, (laughs) you did it, you figured it out." Yeah,
1: a lot of a lot of his body in this movie as well, uh, which also the age of like Marvel movies where everyone's body is insane and like no one's no one has sex seems very different.
0: Yeah, it was, I I think they did a really good job with having moments where he's obviously prone and obviously vulnerable. And he looks so small and soft and, like, you know, he looks, like, very, very, like, tender in the way that, like, meat looks tender, is what I would say. (laughs) Like, there's a lot of, like, sort of depictions of him naked and, like, broken. Mm. And then there's also moments in which he is sort of, like, you know, in sexual thrall or in a kind of, in a moment, like, he doesn't get a lot of moments to be strong. Mm. But he gets a lot of moments to really wear that chainmail. Yes. That's <laughs> what I'll say. Indeed. So, like, I, I really appreciate that. You know, A24, y'all are really brave for finally letting Dave Patel be super hot. And not be, like, some kind of soft, really great, sensitive guy. But, like, mm-hmm. also soft and sensitive and hot. Yes, so. exactly.
1: I feel like we can think, leave it there.
0: Yeah, we, I think we can leave it there as well. <laughs> Good chat. <laughs>